As I mentioned before, my name is Nick Bratcher. I am the campus minister for RUF, and I am truly glad that you could be with us tonight. Uh, I don't know if Harry Potter is still cool these days. Occasionally I talk to uh, Gen Zers and they're like, people don't read Harry Potter anymore. But be that as it may, uh, there's a scene in the Order of the Phoenix that reminds me a lot of our passage tonight. It's discovered that Harry Potter, the main character, is vulnerable to the mind control of this evil dark wizard, Lord Voldemort. I know some of you guys are like, we already know the plot of the movie, but just in case you don't, there's this evil wizard and Harry actually can have his mind taken over by Voldemort and he can sometimes hear his voice and can even see and feel things as Voldemort does. This encourages Harry to do things and think things sometimes that he might not otherwise. And his ability, his, sorry, his inability to discern what is true and what's good can be weaponized against him. So Harry's wise old professor, Dumbledore, decides he needs to learn how to shield his mind from others' control. In the end, uh, it's actually very sad. Harry fails at this task and I won't uh, ruin it for you, but someone dies because of it. There is a lot at stake in listening to the right voices and in believing the truth. In tonight's passage, 1 John 4, 1 through 6, I think that's up behind me. John, uh, his readers are struggling with this same dynamic, but it's not a game. It's not a fictional story. It's real life. There are voices with conflicting messages about the truth, particularly who is Jesus. In the midst of the cacophony, John is going to advocate that Jesus has come in the flesh, so we must believe that truth. Uh, If you're a note taker, that's kind of our big idea. That's kind of what uh, I'm going to be advocating all night for is because Jesus has in fact come in the flesh, we must believe that truth to be of God. And John's going to give us two reasons for that, two reasons why we should believe in this God-man Jesus. The first is the worldliness of the false teaching, and the second is the godliness of his audience. Uh, we'll come back to that, but let's uh, jump into our text tonight. It's 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as a general reminder of where we've been, especially for those who might be new tonight, this semester we've been making our way through 1 John. 
as part of our sermon series that you may know. That's what we've called it. And we've called it that because some people that John describes as antichrists were, and this just simply means that they were opposed to Christ, right? They are anti-Christ. We're causing believers to be unsure about who God is, what he has done in Jesus, and who they were in relation to that work. John writes, so that they may know the truth. This little fledgling church in the first century wondering about these uh, confusing things, he writes to them so that they may know the truth. And part of the way he accomplishes that is by returning again and again to the main themes we've been looking at so far this semester. And those are that God is light. We heard that in our uh, call to confession, that this God has made a way through Jesus's death to bring us from darkness into light, that we must believe in the divine provision of Jesus for that to happen. And finally, that living in the light means our behavior will reflect the family business that we have been brought into. And in tonight's passage, John is circling back again to that third point. What are we to believe about Jesus? Uh, It's been said that Paul, the way he writes his letters is typically, he kind of follows like a logical argument. John tends to kind of circle back around over and over and over again to a same theme, but wording it slightly different, uh, bringing out different ideas each time he comes back to it. And the heart of what John is trying to communicate tonight is found in verse two. If you want to look there, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. This confession is both John's simplest argument against these antichrists that have risen up in the church. And it's also the test by which his readers can discern if they believe the truth, if they can discern the truth from fiction. To understand what he means, though, we probably need to make sense of what John is saying when he says the word spirit. Uh, When he says every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, what does he mean by spirit? Uh, When we think of spirit, we tend to think of like some sort of vapor-like substance. Uh, Usually, um, maybe an, an image from a cartoon comes to mind where when someone dies, their like spirit levitates out of their body. It looks just like them, but it's kind of holo- uh, not holographic, so transparent, right? You can see through it. Uh, modern cart- cartoons owe that idea of like what happens when you die and what spirits are. They probably owe that idea more to Platonic philosophy than they do to the Bible. Uh, in Platonism, the, the, the body is seen as this decaying thing that at death you are liberated from that finally you do not have to deal with your body anymore. This world is evil and God, when you die, liberates you from it. But the biblical view is that death is an alien intruder. Uh, An alien intruder into this world at the fall in Genesis 3, and it's not how we were designed. So what I would submit to you is we do not have spirits, right? Just as we do not have bodies, We are spirits. We are bodies. Uh, Both are resurrected in the second coming of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And so John uses the term spirit interchangeably with people, like the prophets in verse 1. That's how he's evaluating the content of their message, is he's calling them spirits and 
their message has a certain spirit to it because it is them who's giving it. So we should understand not some spooky Halloween ghost when we think of uh, what, what he's talking about here when he says spirits, but, or, or even uh, an angelic being. Spirits are to be understood as embodied people, just like uh, Jesus is an embodied person. It's his readers and us by extension. If we are from God, we are to believe that Jesus has come in the flesh. Well, it's certainly, uh, and, and what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus has come in the flesh? So if we can get the spirits thing out, we can say like, okay, spirits are people. People are supposed to believe this thing that Jesus comes in the flesh. What am I supposed to make of that? Uh, well, I'll say this. It doesn't, to believe that Jesus came in the flesh does not mean that you acknowledge that Jesus existed right? Uh, there's demons like the one in Mark 5 that readily acknowledge that Jesus was a person and that even he was the son of God. Uh, they readily acknowledge this. Acknowledging the reality of Jesus is not what makes a believer. Instead, to confess this reality is to believe two things. First, it means that Jesus is the Christ. In Greek, this word Christ, Christos, uh, it's actually the same word when you translate it into the Hebrew. It's the same word that they use for Messiah or uh, Messiah. It's the anointed one, the chosen one, whom the whole Old Testament, all of world history points toward this one being in whom all things find their fulfillment. God's commitment since the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 is to bring a people to himself, cleanse them of their sins, and make them a blessing to the whole world. And it is through this Christ, this figure, that he is going to do it. As such, right, when he does this, when Jesus dies, he lives his life, obeys the ways we could not, dies the death we should have died, and is resurrected, uh, triumphing over the grave, he becomes our hope and justification before God's judgment. If we place our faith in his work on our behalf, he is our Lord and King. He has all authority and power. Secondly, by coming in the flesh, we should also deny that Jesus was merely a man. To come in the flesh indicates that there is a place Jesus was before that was not in the flesh, right? He existed before his incarnation as God, and he was born as a man with these two natures, human and divine in one person. Uh, there was a popular heresy at the end of the first century and into the second century that actually uh, held that Jesus uh, was uh, just a man. And then when he got baptized, God, the Christ, descended upon him. And then right before he died, the Christ left him and he died just as a man, not both man and God. But the teaching John is advocating refutes that understanding. Jesus is nothing less than the perfect incarnate God who alone takes away the sins of the world and is alone its true savior, dying on the cross, resurrecting to eternal life, becoming king over all things. Now, okay, I just gave you a bunch of doctrine, right? You're all like, okay, glazed over eyes. I see it, I know. But uh, that all sounds maybe reasonable to us. Yeah, okay, Jesus died on the cross. Yeah, I gotta believe that, right? So that's what, what John says. That's what he's rooting his whole argument in. But what I would say is it's not as simple as that. Uh, we might all just let that slide by us. 
But I would argue that there are many, many voices, not just in John's day, but in our own day, that actually encourage us and advocate that we ought to believe the same struggles that these people are struggling with that John writes to, right? They challenge whether or not God is our incarnate king. We hear voices that tell us that our king really should be a job hunt. You know, that if we, if we give everything we can to having the right job, we'll be safe and secure. If I can get the right internships or get the right professor's attention, then I'll be fine. We hear voices that tell us if I get the right grades, if only I get the right grades, or, or maybe if I could win a certain scholarship or an award, then I'll be successful enough to matter, to be significant. And like, do we not believe these voices sometimes? Do they not sound true? Do we not all have sexual sin? Some place in our, our story where we have confessed that we believe something else about our bodies that Jesus is not the king over our decisions with what we want to do with our bodies? Do we not all have pride, right? Some understanding that if, uh, that we are funnier or cooler or better looking or taller or I don't know, uh, taller. Uh, does he have a personality or is he just tall? Um, it, you know, whatever it is. And we, we say, I am better than this person because I have this thing. I'm nicer, I'm holier. I go to a Bible study and that person doesn't. We, we tend to make all these other things, the things that govern our lives, that define us. And John, first and foremost, at the heart of this passage is trying to get us to see that what makes a Christian, the litmus test of a Christian is we don't listen to those other voices. We don't listen to those other voices uh, when we are tempted to, this is timely, when we are tempted to think about, uh, uh, this is a good litmus test for all of us maybe, when you think about the other party, the people who voted for whoever you did not vote for today or in the past when you voted like last month, when you think about those people, do you think you're better than them? Right? Do you think they're the, they're the bad people? They're the racists? They're the, you know, the murderers, they're the whatever. Like, is that how you think about them? That you, and you are excluded, of course, from their moral ineptitude. The question is, who made you the judge, right? Who, who have you replaced as the rightful judge? In Luke 18, Jesus tells this parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And uh, essentially, this Pharisee, who is a really good person, he gives, uh, you know, he ties, he gives his money away to the poor people, he fasts twice a week. He's a really, really, like what we would say is a really good person. And there's, and he comes in, he says, thank you, God, that you have not made me like this other guy over here, a tax collector and a sinner. And the tax collector standing off by himself, can't even bring himself to actually be in the company of other people, hangs his head down, can't look up to heaven and cries out, Lord, have mercy on me a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, rather than the prideful Pharisee, who by all respects is a better person who doesn't steal from his family uh, on behalf of Rome, right? That that person goes home justified, that before God, he is clean, he is worthy, he is good. 
But why, why would anyone in John's audience challenge this understanding, right? Why would anybody under, challenge this understanding of Jesus? We know from the first chapter, if you're here with us, uh, that John and the other apostles, they saw Jesus, they heard what he said, they touched him. It seems unrefutable, right? Who are these false prophets? How, how is it possible that they could refute what John is saying is true about Jesus, that he really does love us like that, that he is the rightful judge and yet does not condemn us? Well, this brings us to our, our first of two reasons why we should believe in this God, this God-man Jesus, and the first of the worldliness of the, teach, of the false teaching. Look at me at verses one through three. Cam, if you'll pull those up. Look at me at verses one through three. Here we see the content of the opponent's message. From verse one, we know that the antichrists who were described as going out in the world in chapter two had set themselves up as prophets, right? This means that they claim to have a message from God in the early days of the church and continuing even today in, the, in, in many churches in the global South. The, the gift of prophecy was widely practiced and people were to take direct revelation from God that people would say, and they, and they would take it as God's own word. So when these false prophets started to deny that Jesus was truly human, John's readers were naturally confused, right? Who, who were they supposed to believe? God, in the form of this prophet, was telling them this other thing about Jesus that John had not said, and they became confused. In verse 2, which we've just discussed, John tells them that they should look at the content of the false prophet's message. John is reiterating again the truth that Jesus walked among them as a man. John is uh, pointing out first that it's just a sheer falsehood, right? The first way that he's refuting them by, by giving them this litmus test, these false prophets, their content, their message, he's saying, first and foremost, that's just not true, right? I watched them in the lifetime of eyewitnesses who could refute John's understanding of things, right? If, if this church, assumedly, right, if this church doubted what John was saying, they could have written to their friend in Jerusalem and been like, hey, John tells us that Jesus was a man, that he was born, that he lived and died uh, for us. Is that, is that right? Is that how it happened? The, the, they're not a competing accounts, right? There's, there's not lost books. Uh, what this should do is encourage us that John is telling his readers the truth. If you're here and you sometimes doubt whether or not any of this really happened, right? Did, are the gospels all made up? Let this actually be a little bit of an encouragement to you that John says, I'm not making it up, right? On the, on the bare you know, reading of this, at the very least, what John is saying is, these people who deny that Jesus was a real man are liars. They're making up their own reality. Other accounts or books, right? There are no such thing as lost books that like tell us that Jesus wasn't who he said he was and things. John, a lifetime, a, an eyewitness of Jesus is advocating for the truth of who Jesus was. And that is that he was God and man. What these false prophets are attacking is actually also the very heart of the gospel. So it's not only are they lying about just who Jesus is historically, but they're lying theologically. 
right? John is also positing that the substance of his confession is better than his opponents. If, here's what this means, right? So we might think like, what does it matter if Jesus was a man or if he was God? But if Jesus was not really a man, right? It did not really die a man's death then he did not really take on our sin. And if he did not really take on our sin, then he did not conquer it in his resurrection. If the false prophets are right, it's not just a difference of opinion, right? Whether, God, whether Jesus was God is not a difference of opinion. It means that Jesus did not really save us. If the false prophets are right, then the tax collector is right to hang his head and be sad because he is without hope in the world. And so also is the Pharisee who's prideful. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, in other words, if Jesus has not been a real man who has resurrected from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. John can make this claim that the Antichrists are false prophets because the content of their message strikes at the vital of the gospel. What this means for us is that like John's readers in the first century, we need to grapple with this spiritual reality, right? With uh, the fact that Jesus is real, that we have abiding hope in him. We need to drink deeply of the confidence that we have that the Bible tells an accurate portrayal of things, but also that that accurate portrayal should stir in us hope. Should stir in us hope. It's a gospel of grace. Jesus is king. The anxiety we feel tonight, maybe many of us, as we wait to see who is going to be the next president of the United States, uh, can be lifted somewhat if we realize that like, the center reality of all things is that it does not matter who the president is going to be, that Jesus is on his throne and that that matters far more than who the president of the United States is. False prophets tell us that whoever's elected, our grades, whether a boy or girl likes us, whether your friends approve of you, those things all try to tell you that that's your identity, that that's what matters, that Jesus was just a man, that it doesn't, that it doesn't really make a difference whether or not he died, whether or not he lived. All of that stuff doesn't make a difference because these are the things that define you. And John, in the face of all those competing truths, says, not so fast. Not so fast. Don't listen to the false prophets. That, that's, if nothing else, uh, hear me say that. Don't listen to the competing voices that you hear in our culture, in your own heads, that, that can try to condemn you and tell you that you're not enough. You are, and this is proof. Their message is no match for the freedom of the gospel. Because Jesus has come in the flesh, we should, this was our first point, believe in him because the worldliness of the false teaching. But also, John argues that it's not just the content, right? It's not just the content of these prophecies that prove his confession true. It's also the kind of people who receive them. It's their character. Because Jesus has come in the flesh, we must believe him because of the godliness of those who know the truth. Look with me at verses four through six, the latter half of the passage. In verse four, John describes the identity of those who believe his gospel message. Their source of life is God. They are his children adopted by God into a new family. And 
not only this, but God is actually in them. I mean, I, I think sometimes we read passages like that and we just skip right over them, but we don't really stop to think the, the reality that we are united to Christ and the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, not as some theoretical reality, but as God in us living out the truth. He is our source of life. And uh, John has already said that the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives. Uh, here in verse six, he reiterates it. We've hit on these points before, but uh, that, that we are in a new family, that God has born us again, that we uh, are called into the light and our, our life is of God. Uh, but what I want to point to tonight is a little different how John says it tonight. I want to draw our attention to the reason uh, John's reason for their overcoming, right? That they're, uh, these people, the people he've writ- he's written to, he says, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Not only is God in them, right? Not only is God in them, but he is greater than the evil one. The people who believe John's gospel over the myriad voices offering alternatives are not strong in and of themselves, right? It's, it's not because they're so awesome that they don't believe the lies, right? When I tell you guys even, don't, don't read your own press, right? When I tell you not to uh, believe these false gods that appear for you, I would say uh, it's not that I'm encouraging you to do this on your own, but rather to see what John is saying here. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In other words, God preserves his people. God preserves his people. You're not left to fend for yourself. God is mightier than whoever might try to lead you astray. In doctrinal terms, right, we call this the perseverance of the saints. As John notes in his gospel in John 17, Jesus gives eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. And he guards them so that not one of them has been lost. Jesus doesn't lose people because he's powerful. He's greater than he who is in the world. And, the, and God, the father doesn't uh, just give his people to Jesus and hope that he will keep them uh, only to be disappointed, right? Instead, uh, he knows that, that Jesus will keep them. Uh, Jesus says of himself in John 6, also, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Let me say that again. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Uh, It's not up to you, right? Uh, It's not up to you to maintain this truth, to hold on to what's good, to discern all these things. Though John is giving these people the reality, like the, the truth that they need, helping them discern things is actually God in them, working through them, that is calling them into uh, belief and preserving them in it. The reason they have victory, right? The reason that they have not been overcome, that they have actually done the overcoming is because God is great and he is great for his people. Uh, we should take rest and refuge in that. The world, right? Meanwhile, looking at verse five, they have a different result. Those without God's love and favor are left to their own desires 
And when they hear the allure of a life without a true king, without Jesus, without justification and his authority over their lives, it's music to their ears. They hear the world and listen to the world. The world speaks from itself to itself. The world without God cannot comprehend why anyone would give up your freedom to serve and to sacrifice for anybody else, especially Jesus. And it reinforces this notion in myriad ways. The world is full of voices, right? Like I mentioned earlier, full of voices that will tell you the way to happiness, to lasting identity. Uh, I got to say it again, for months, right? We have heard from, uh, I don't know if it's, if you, this happened to you, but Uh, For about two months now, I get at least one phone call every day telling me that my life will be better. I will be happier if I vote for whoever's on the other end of that phone, right? Uh, We're told that uh, if you think about advertisements, we're told that if we buy the right skin cream, uh, we'll be, you know, we'll have a better complexion and look better. We'll be prettier and smarter and funnier. Uh, if we take the right pill, we'll be skinnier. If, uh, you get in on the right investment platform, then you'll get lots of money and then you'll never have to worry about ever being scared or insecure again. Uh, in these kinds of things, right? These are the voices, right? We may not have little profits going out from our, from your church or whatever. You may not be in the same situation as these people, but you have voices that are calling you away from the truth. Uh, it's the late night text message, right? The, the, the booty call. Is that what they're called now? I don't know what they're called. Hookup, whatever. Whatever you guys are calling it these days. Uh, it's those things that tell you that, man, you, you can be significant. You can matter. For a moment, somebody will look you in the eye and tell you that you mean something. It's the gossip about your roommate that makes you feel like you're in the right and they're in the wrong. It's, you know, it's even the Bible reading plan or the quad that you're a part of that makes you feel superior to everybody else. Signals to the world that you're a good person. Uh, Those are all empty promises. Apart from Jesus, those are all empty promises. They cannot deliver. Money is fleeting. Beauty is fleeting. We are all going to die. (laughs) It's just the reality of it. And this is probably why John follows this statement, right? As he's talking about the world's empty promises and that they buy into them, he follows that statement with the fact that we do not, that his reader's identity in verse six is different. They listen to John and heed his words. This is significant because John claims, right, what John is claiming is that he has such authority that when he speaks, God, God's Holy Spirit reveals who God truly is And uh, also that he reveals to us whether we are really of God if we listen. In Matthew 10, Jesus numbers and sends out the apostles. And he says, whoever receives you, receives me. In other words, he's saying that you can be received on my behalf. You can speak for me. And how people accept or reject you, they have accepted or rejected me. Uh, They have the power to speak for Jesus. And in John 16, we're told why how that happens. What if they screw it up, right? Why would Jesus give them that power? Well, John 16, we're told that they can't screw it up because Jesus promises to send them the Holy Spirit to give them the words to say. This is one more reason why we believe the Bible, right? The kind of people 
that hear John's message that John wants them to be are the kind of people that hear the, the authority that Jesus has given them and that he will speak through the words that he has uh, given his people to say in the Bible. As many of you know, um, yeah, that God speaks through those words. As, as many of you know, uh, my parents both passed away when I was pretty young. When I was 13, my, sorry, 12, my dad passed. And then when I was 22, my mom passed away, uh, both of cancer. And before they died, uh, my parents actually told my sister and I and, uh, and my aunt and uncle that they would be taking care of us. Like if anything ever happens to them, it was just understood that uh, my dad had one brother and that he and his wife would take care of us. If we weren't 18, then we'd move in with them. But if we were older, they still like, they're the people that look out for us. I still go to Christmas actually every year at their house um, so that I can still have like parents and a family to celebrate with. Um, and the reality is I, I look forward to that every year uh, because I count on them saying the same thing every year. It's this, your mom and dad would be proud of you. Every year I look forward to this one moment where my, where my uncle will look at me and I know it's coming and he'll say, hey, I know your mom and dad would be proud of you. Uh, the reality is they have not spoken to my parents lately. They don't really, uh, they haven't asked them if that's the case. But it means something to me all the same because my parents and my uncle and aunt intimately knew each other. Uh, my parents trusted their judgment. They knew uh, them. They knew each other intimately enough to speak on their behalf. And so when they tell me, you know, even though it's not my parents, right, telling me this, when my uncle and aunt tell me that they're proud of me, I hear that as if it comes from my own parents. This, right, is the place of the writers of the New Testament, only even more sure because God can actually speak through them uh, in ways that my parents cannot now. When the biblical writers tell us that God loves us, that he cares for us, that he's proud of us, that we have no reason for shame, we should believe them. That's the kind of people we should be. The, this identity as a people who are preserved by God and know his voice mean that uh, at least a couple things. First, uh, it is not judgmental to resist false doctrine. Okay, if it's true that God has spoken through his people, that John can really tell you that you can know if you know God by listening to him, right? then it is absolutely true that you rejecting false prophets, you rejecting other narratives, you rejecting other claims to supremacy of your life, other ethics, that those things do not have the final word. So you can uh, stand for both black lives and unborn babies, for the poor and the marginalized and the immigrant, and also the authority of Jesus over our sexual ethics. You can do all those things. The world won't know what to do with you, but that's the truth of scripture, that we are both for the poor and marginalized and also for God's ethics of good that are evidenced in his word and that he has the authority to tell us them. We don't have to apologize for those things because they're God's grace to us. Because Jesus has come in the flesh, we should believe him not only because of the worldliness of the content and the false teaching, but also because of who we get to be in light of it. Let's pray.